Well, good morning. Would you please open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20? Just kidding. I panicked for a moment there because uh, I was like, did he send me a text or is he joking? I couldn't. <laughs> like uh, Rich said, we're going to be taking a break from our study through Ruth this morning. So please open up your Bibles actually to Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 24. Happy Mother's Day, by the way, to all moms. Let's give a round of applause to all moms here. You guys are great. I was uh, lucky. I got to a couple weeks go home with my wife, Marissa. We got to see our moms uh, back in the western suburbs of Chicago. It was a good time to be with family, and um, it happened to be my mom's birthday when we were back there, so it just worked out to be a good time. And while we were back there, one of the things... Uh, we got to do was have a dinner with some old friends of ours from a Bible study that we did when we were in college. It's actually the Bible study where Marissa and I kind of reconnected and eventually resulted in us getting married. And one of the guys that we had dinner with who was also at that Bible study, his name was Wes. I'm going to be talking about Wes a little bit. And uh, Wes was an, he was an adamant Roman Catholic guy who uh, came to the Bible study, I, I think mostly just to kind of argue and discuss because he thought it was fun. And uh, we were going through the book of Romans, so if there was a book to uh, be able to do that with it, it was definitely Romans. It tends to be at the center of a lot of theological disagreement between Protestants and Roman Catholics. Now, if you don't know what the word Protestant means, it simply refers to those who protested the Roman Catholic Church during the days of the Reformation. It's kind of a category that represents all the various denominations that came out of the Reformation. Our church would be considered a Protestant church. And the crux of much of what our discussion, Wes and I, uh, centered around in our Bible study and actually what the Reformation centered on was this ever-critical doctrine of justification. Now, many tend to immediately tune out when they hear the Asian words come out. They're like, well, no, that's, that's too fancy for me. That's a word for theological elites and uh, you know, theologians, and I, I, I don't know what those mean. You kind of tune out. But I want you to listen because I think that justification is central to the gospel. I think it is core to the gospel. I, I think it is the diamond in the ring of salvation. So what is justification? Well, justification is the act by which God judges a person to be righteous. It is a legal declaration of righteousness. So to be justified is to be declared righteous. That's going to be really important, so hold that definition in your brain. Now, Wes and I, representing Protestant and Catholic beliefs, both agreed on a couple things. We agreed that the Bible teaches that sin merits eternal punishment. We also agreed that all mankind has sinned and is sinful. And we also agreed that God does not merely cover his eyes and ignore sin and not care, because that would detract from his justice. God is just. And so we agreed that in order for us to be with God someday, anyone who would be with God would need to be declared righteous or justified by God. Because nothing unrighteous and stained with sin can ever enter the kingdom of our Lord. Now, that's really important. Where we disagreed was this point. On what basis does God make a declaration of righteousness? So we agreed we needed to be declared righteous. The question is, on what grounds are we declared righteous? righteous. Why would God declare you or I a just person when we are, in fact, not a just person? We're not just or righteous. So how could a good, righteous, holy, just God do that? Seems to be a problem. Well, the Catholics say that God will not declare one righteous until that person is actually found to be righteous themselves. So according to Rome, Acceptable righteousness must be found in you before God can justify you. And this is problematic, right? Because we are not, nor can we ever be, perfectly just ourselves. 
So they teach that Christ must infuse righteousness into us. And if we cooperate with that righteousness, if we work with it, if we, if we work with God, then we can actually be considered righteous. And so with the help of grace via various works like baptism or penance, if you know anything about the Catholic faith, those are called sacraments. With faith through Christ, one can actually become righteous in God's eyes. So righteous life plus sacraments plus faith plus Christ equals our own righteousness. So let me ask you, would you, you be worthy of being declared just by the Most High ever in this system? Think about what it's saying. You need to do enough, work enough with God to be seen as righteous by Him. Can you even say you've done enough to be seen as righteous in your own eyes, let alone God's eyes? The burden of this requirement to be just in God's sight, if we're hold, to hold to this view of justification, is absolutely crushing to us. This isn't a burden unique to Catholicism. Any religious system where one's own worthiness is the basis of their acceptance before the Lord is suffocating. It squeezes the life out of us. Catholicism, Mormonism, Islam, Buddhism, you name it, it doesn't matter. Any system that, that teaches you need to be worthy in and of yourself will suffocate you. When we go out on Thursday nights and we do street evangelism, uh, we'll often ask people to morally analyze themselves. Now, where, where do you, I, I'll say, I literally will draw a line on the concrete. I think I actually stole this from Pastor Rich one time I saw him do it. And I say, okay, this is the group of righteous people, and this is the group of dirty, rotten, wicked sinners. Which group do you think that you're in? Are you in the perfectly righteous group or are you in the, the sinner group? And m very few people will contend that they're perfect. They might think they're good, but very few will say, well, I've perfectly kept everything. Per perfection is the standard in the eyes of a most high God. The one who says otherwise, who says, no, I am perfect, that's me. They're lying to themselves because all know that they are imperfect. Scripture tells us that the human conscience knows it is not worthy. It tells us that we are lawbreakers. So I ask you again, if God were to judge your life this very night, would he find you worthy? That's why these types of religious systems induce in us an unceasing fear, an unceasing anguish, and an eternal guilt that cannot be quenched. There was a Catholic monk once who, in his writings, articulated this very anguish that he felt deeply in his soul. And it was caused by the Catholic view that we must act righteously to be with God. This monk was consumed with guilt, and he had an acute awareness of his own unrighteousness and unworthiness before God. It was crippling to him. It was his perpetual burden. Listen to what this monk once wrote. I tortured myself with prayer, fasting, vigils, and freezing. What else did I seek by doing this but God, who was supposed to note my strict observance of the monastic order? I regarded Christ only as a severe and terrible judge. He wrote elsewhere, I earnestly thought to acquire righteousness by my works. This guy would spend many hours a day confessing his sins. He knew he was unworthy. And despite all his attempts to make up for it, what hope did he have that he could possibly convince a holy God that he was just? Now, you and I, we're not strangers to this thinking. It's a familiar feeling. Our flesh is drawn to the idea that we need some of our own righteousness to make it to God. We want to boast in our works. I think it likely that you too have, at some point in your life, struggled with a sense of hopelessness, and anxiety, and despair. How could I ever be acceptable to God? How could I ever be saved after what I have done? When we know that we're wicked, and that all of our works are worthless. And you feel this truth. You feel it. No amount of clenching your fists and trudging forward to do good will ever prove you worthy in the eyes of God. You had one shot at righteousness, and you missed it. It's gone. 
And I missed it. And Wes missed it. And so did this monk named Martin Luther. You may have heard of him. But Luther rediscovered something in the pages of Scripture that would change everything. A precious doctrine that would spark the greatest theological revival in the history of the church. What Luther found in Scripture was that the true grounds for justification can never be found in ourselves, ever. What he found is that we needed someone else's righteousness. Listen to this. God does not declare us righteous because we are righteous. He declares us righteous because Christ is righteous. And this truth is the golden key which will unlock the door to our eternal hope and peace and secure, unshakable joy. Let's read the text of Romans 3, 21 through 24 together now. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Let's look at the first two, helps if I turn it on, first two words in this section. But now, now, these words are like monumental, world-changing, history-shaking kind of words, but you don't really get that if you just look at this text. So bear with me for a moment. We are going to trek through the history of Romans up to this point. In your Bibles right now, turn back to Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. We're going to hop and skip, so uh, keep with if you can. Romans 1, 18 through 20. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Jump down to uh, verses 28. Romans 1, 28, and then verse 32. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. Verse 32. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Flip over to chapter 2, verse 3. Do you suppose, O man... You who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Look at verse 5. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Finally, the kicker, Romans 3, verses 10 through 18. For the record, I love the sound of Bible pages flipping. That's such a great sound. As it is written... None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, in their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Should I get another one of these? Mike, yeah, cool. Okay, so lest there be any confusion or unclarity in these passages, let me summarize this for you. All of mankind is hopelessly, utterly lost. There is no one good, no one seeks for God. And God's, righteous, or God's wrath is revealed from heaven against the ungodly. Let these verses, for a moment, penetrate your soul. Let them sink in and feel the weight of what was just said about your condition. I think one of two things very commonly happens. We're either 
really prone to feel the weight of our sin, or we are too easily numbed to the reality of our sinfulness and God's holiness. I am too easily numbed. That's my extreme. I want to talk about that extreme for a moment here. Many people in today's world tend to view the love of God as so overwhelming and so wonderful that nothing would ever ruffle his feathers. Because God is so loving, he would never hate anything. He unconditionally loves everyone. Isn't that great? But friends, that's not what the Bible teaches. That is not what the Bible says. That is a worldly view of God. God hates sin. He hates sin. And he sets himself positionally against the sinner. Though we love the love of God, far too often we fail to perceive the utter holiness of God. Our God is a holy God. He is pure and utterly righteous, and his justice requires wrath on ungodliness. None is righteous. No, not one. No one does good. Not even one. Goodness, you should all understand this. We should all understand this, right? Do we not feel that weight of living up, trying to live up to the standard of holiness and failing? Our failure as husbands and wives and parents and children and employees and bosses and friends and neighbors. We have our sexual failures, our dishonesty, our pride, our idolatry. These vices are familiar to us often even as believers. And we can suppress our shame and guilt for this. We're, we do this all the time. But if we're introspective, and we pause for a moment, we can see just how far we are from the righteousness of God. It is not a tiny little gap. It is a huge, infinite gap. Paul is trying to get us to see that righteousness by these means is impossible to attain. You will never be good enough to be righteous in God's eyes. It's not just difficult, it's impossible. Feel that in your soul. Think for a moment about how your sin is a cosmic rebellion against the infinitely righteous and powerful creator. And that momentary terror, that horror at what will come because of this reality is the constant despair of Luther, who recognized that his works were nothing that would ever merit a righteous verdict. Paul spent literally chapters hammering this truth over and over from every angle. We are square in the crosshairs of God's judgment. And no matter your sin, no matter how severe, we're all in trouble here. We are in this swimming pool together. We're all destined for hell. But wait a minute. What if we just knew literally the list, like one, two, three, the list of things God required? Maybe if we just really tried really hard to do that list, we could do it. And God gave his people a list, a guide to know what he requires for righteousness. It's called the law. It's his standard. Yeah, that's it. That's the answer. Now we know what we have to do. That was the problem. We just, we just didn't know. But look at what Paul says in chapter 3, verses 19 through 20. It kind of leads up to our section. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now note, this is not merely the Mosaic law, the law given by Moses. It's more than that. It says the whole world will be held accountable to God, and no human being will be justified in his sight. It's not just the Jews. It's talking about anyone for any law ever. There is none who could rightly adhere to any law that could ever satisfy the infinite holiness of our Lord. Law, when it collides with the rebellion of man, produces condemnation, not justification. And condemnation and justification are uh, complete polar opposites. Condemnation is the legal declaration of guilt and judgment. Justification, the legal declaration of righteousness. But this praise God, is not the end of the story. In fact, it's the very beginning of the book of Romans. And so we come to our text, Romans 3, 21. But now, so now you see where we've been. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested. The righteousness of God has been manifested. 
This is the great shift in Romans and in human history and in your story, provided you believe in Christ. It's the transfer from hopelessness to righteousness, from despair to joy, and from destruction to everlasting life. We can't help look at this, and if you read through Romans, there's like a bell going off. This sounds kind of similar. Paul stated a sort of thesis for the first part of Romans in chapter 1, chapter 1, verses 16 through 17. I'm going to go there right now. Now, if you were good church kids, uh, then you might have uh, verse 16 memorized, because it's a pretty common verse to memorize. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. We're really quick to memorize that verse, but... Uh, Very few people continue to memorize the next one, and we ought to, because it's fantastic. Verse 17, for in it, it, the gospel, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. When Martin Luther looked at this verse, he paused. The righteousness of God is revealed? What does it it mean that the righteous shall live by faith? How do righteous people live by faith? Don't they have to be righteous? And it, it clicked for Luther when he read this verse. He got it. This is the verse in which he realized that righteousness is not something we earn. It's something we receive. It's something revealed. It's something granted by faith. As it's written... The righteous shall live by faith. Back to our text, 21. The righteousness of God has been manifested. It's been shown. It's been made known. It's publicly displayed, this righteousness of God. And how is it publicly displayed? Well, it's not from the law. It's apart from the law. And this, my friends, is good, good news for us. Because no law is going to help us be righteous. In this phrase, we have the freedom of Christianity. The law or any things we have to do is not the means through which we're acceptable to God. We don't cooperate with God's grace so that some special kind of works will be good enough. Oh, what a magnificent truth this is. Praise God, there is another way. A righteousness of God apart from the law. Not by works. Not by our frail, unworthy, stained hands. Look at the next verse. We're going to come back to, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, but I want to get to this first. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ. How is righteousness manifested? How do we now see the righteousness of God? Through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And this is the answer. This is what Luther discovered. Folks, this is the gospel. That righteousness is received, not earned. It's the truth of Christianity that sets us free. It's why we say we are justified by faith alone. It's why Jesus is the only, he's the way and the truth and the life and why no one can come to the Father except through him. It is what puts biblical Christianity at odds from every other religion in the world that says you have a list of things to do, do them, and you can be with God. It's the grace and mercy of God on display. Here's what it means. You're a sinner. And unchecked, that means you are going to hell. Ain't nothing you can do about it. That's the problem. But God in his grace, in his grace, has made a way for you to be saved, for you to not suffer his great wrath, and it is through his son. Jesus Christ is our righteousness, and we receive his righteousness through faith. Now, pause for a moment. There's an error that some people have held to that I want to stop and address real quick. We need to understand that faith is not merely a special kind of work that makes us righteous in God's eyes. To be justified by faith does not mean that our faith is a a supreme work that helps us be righteous. It does not help us be righteous. That would be no no different from the idea that it is the law that saves us. We might as well call it the law of faith if that was the, the case. 
The language of this text indicates that faith is the means or the instrument by which we appropriate and lay hold of Christ. And that sounds confusing, and I'm going to try and break it down a little bit a little uh, here. Think of painting a picture for a minute. Who or what caused that picture to be painted? Well, you could answer the painter did, right? Because the idea came from the painter's brain, and it was his hand that made the strokes. It's their painting, their work. You could also say, technically, it was the paintbrush. That's what literally had the paint on there and was spread across the canvas to make the painting. The paintbrush was the instrument that was used to bring forth the painting. The same idea is being used right here. Faith is merely the paintbrush. Christ is the painter. We receive righteousness on the basis of Jesus and his work, not because faith is a magical kind of work. I want to jump back, like I said, real quick and look at something I passed over in the previous verse now. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. And then we just saw the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Notice how it's apart from the law, but the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Law and the prophets referring to the Old Testament. The law pointed to our need for an external righteousness. It pointed to our need for atonement and forgiveness. Paul proves this from the Old Testament in the very next chapter. Think back in your brains about how you would write a paper if you were in school still. For some of you, I know this was like 10 million years ago, so just try and think back. Often in papers, you make claims, and then you'll use sources and proofs to back up and, and uh, substantiate that claim. And this is precisely what Paul does in Romans chapter 3 and Romans chapter 4. He introduces these doctrines plainly and clearly in chapter 3, and then seeks to prove them using the Old Testament in chapter 4. Look at, turn your Bibles real quick to uh, chapter 4, verse 3. It says, For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, Abraham was the ancestor of Moses. So this is before the law of Moses was ever given. Abraham was able to be seen as righteous before God apart from the law. And if this is the case, it means that there's always been an indication of a means of righteousness apart from the law. It's not a new idea that's cooked up now. There's always been seeds of this in the Old Testament. God counted or reckoned Abraham's faith to him as righteousness. A couple of verses later, look at verses 6 through 8. Paul will quote David about this very idea. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Check this out. Paul talks about Abraham as as having been counted as righteous apart from works of the law. But in this verse, quoting Psalm 32, It tells us that David's sins were forgiven and covered and not counted against him. Do you see see that there? Not only do we see from Old Testament examples righteousness being counted to a sinner, but we see that person's sin not being counted against them. This is called double imputation. You're like, great, another Asian. Bear with it. Double imputation. It's also been referred to as the great exchange. Imputation real quickly, means to credit to one's account. So, if righteousness is imputed to me, it means that righteousness has been credited to my account. What Paul is getting at here is two imputations. My sins I've committed in my life have been imputed or credited to Christ. And Christ's righteousness has been imputed or credited onto me. That means that on the cross, Jesus really died for your sins. Not just the idea of your sins, your sins. My sin debt was transferred from my account into his account, and then he paid off the debt. He cleansed my sins, he made atonement for my sins, he was punished by the divine wrath of God for my iniquities. And in the same way, Christ's righteousness was imputed, credited to me. His perfection was transferred to my account. So not only am I seen as sinless, and not only has the wrath due me been 
perfectly averted to Christ, but I am now seen as perfectly righteous in God's eyes. I have been clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Hence, the great exchange. The Law and the Prophets demonstrate that God can rightly count the unjust as righteous and the sinners as sinless. That's the work that the Son was sent to do. And as Paul will say in a couple verses, he did this so that he, God, the Father, might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So, God does not break the rules here in justifying us. He doesn't, he doesn't, not acting in an unjust way. He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. When I was in high school, I went on a missions trip to Puerto Rico, uh, Arecibo, I think. They pronounce it all cool, but I can't pronounce it like that. So just Arecibo, Puerto Rico. And uh, while we were there, we were putting on a uh, VBS for the kids who were there, living there. And all the kids were instructed every day to bring a spare set of clothes in case they got dirty and they could change into the clean clothes before they went home and whatnot. And uh, if you know anything about kind of that area, it rains like every day. Not like a little rain, like torrential, end-of-the-world, downpour, thunderstorm, lightning craziness um, for like an hour every day. It's, It's nuts. And so one of the days, it was raining, I mean, just the craziest rain you've ever seen. And we were out in a baseball diamond kind of field, and everything just fell apart into utter chaos, and we were hurling mud at each other and rubbing it in each other's hairs, and the kids were doing, sliding through the mud, and it's in their ears, and all sorts of stuff. And they're just, like, so caked in mud. And afterwards, we went back to the, the place, the inside gym where we were holding the VBS, and, I mean, these kids were, like, laughably grossly muddy. It was hilarious. And um, so most of them went and they changed into their clean clothes and scrubbing it out of their ears. But I distinctly remember there's this one kid who was out on the front porch and he's like sitting there shivering full of mud and he's smearing the mud around trying to get it off of him. It's like his hand is just Ugh, he's trying to get it off and get it out of his face and it's, it's making things far worse than they were before. And uh, you're like, oh, Okay, <laughs> you just keep trying. And uh, in this moment, one of the leaders came up to him and said, ah, I see you're a little muddy there. And he was like, yeah. And she's like, uh, let me take your shirt, and we have a little washer. I'll go wash your shirt. And in the meantime here, you can have my coat that I brought. It's clean and warm and cozy and not muddy. And so the kid took off his muddy, stained shirt and gave it to her. And she took off her clean coat and gave it to the kid. And I've thought back on that, and I've used this often as an illustration of this point because it's such a great image of double imputation, the great exchange. We are muddy and stained and caked with mud, and no matter how much we try and get it off, we're just making things worse. But Christ is pure and unstained and clean, and he gives us his coat And he takes our stained, stained shirt and he washes it on the cross. And so now we are seen as perfectly righteousness, not because we were righteous, but because he was. Let's return to the text, verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. This righteousness of God communicated to us in Christ is for all who believe. In other words, there will never be one who truly believes who does not receive the righteousness of God. The object of belief is significant here. It's not just mere faith in and of itself. Faith is not just virtuous because it's faith. That gets you nowhere. It's faith in Jesus Christ that is significant. In Christ is offered to you and I the perfect righteousness of God, and only by belief in him may we receive it. At the same dinner a couple of weeks ago where Marissa and I uh, saw Wes, there was another kid from our Bible study who was there. And uh, this was a guy who, in the years that I've known him, struggles w- with one thing more than anything else, and that is assurance. And his sins and his past are so weighty, he has a hard time of seeing, of seeing himself as savable. And I remember one night sitting down in the darkened lobby of our church back in Illinois, late at night, going through this idea with him. All 
who believe in Christ will receive the righteousness of God. Romans 10, another memory verse, puts it well. Verses 9 through 10. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Oh, what assurance is this. Amen. We can indeed be clothed with the righteousness of Christ, provided we believe in Christ and persevere in that belief. And then, get this, sin cannot touch you after that. You are secure, not in your righteousness, but in another's righteousness. Sin's reach is not long enough to drag you down from the lofty place in which you've been seated in Christ. Paul then continues into verse 23, for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're back to talking about sin one more time. Paul wants to make sure we don't forget our natural state for both the Jew and the Gentile. There is no distinction in salvation. The Jew, the Gentile, the slave, the free man, the Roman, and the barbarian, no one has an advantage salvifically in God's eyes. All are on the same playing field, and all have fallen short. There's no other way to attain salvation, no path that will justify you, no bloodline that counts as more worthy, only by apprehending the blood-stained work of Jesus by faith may we have this gift Paul is most strictly here talking about Jew and Gentile. But we could see this as saying that there's no distinction, perhaps, between the one who grew up in the Christian church and the one who did not. You personally may have grown up in the church, or you maybe had never stepped foot in a Christian church until you were 60 or 70 or whenever. It doesn't matter, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I found that those who grow up in the church often struggle with many of the same sins as those outside the church. There is no distinction, writes Paul. You are not better off in God's eyes if you grew up in one upbringing or another. You may have been the most faithful church kid that there ever was. Maybe a pastor's kid or a missionary kid. Maybe you went to Bible college or seminary. Maybe you memorized like half the New Testament when you were three months old. And that's exactly, honestly, this is exactly how I felt personally growing up, especially when I was in, like, youth group age. I prided myself on being the all-star church kid. Look at me. I've done all the programs. I've completed all the Awana books. I've volunteered at church since I was, like, in the womb. And those are things that good Christians do, right? That's, that's what you do. Paul even writes earlier, earlier in Romans that the Jews did have an advantage There was an advantage, it just wasn't dealing with salvation. The Jews were given, says Paul, the oracles of God, the Old Testament. The Jews grew up knowing what God had said in his word. But Paul goes through great lengths to ensure that we don't think that the Jews have some advantage in their salvation. They don't. I didn't. I had no advantage other than knowing scripture, which was, uh, was God's grace to me. But I think I was, in fact, worse off because I was haughty, and I thought myself good enough. There's no distinction. I sinned. I was crippled and plagued by sin in every category. My shame and guilt led me to cover my own sins with a facade of false righteousness. The beginning of Romans 2, we we read this earlier, says this, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Do you suppose that you will escape the judgment of God? What I needed was not to achieve the final ceasing of my sin so that I could boast in my works and be the faithful church child that I pitched myself to be. I needed to see that the righteousness of God has been manifested in Christ through faith. It's a righteousness of humility. And screaming, I failed, God! I can't do it! I messed it up! Do it for me. For us Christians, we want to seem sanctified. We want to seem as though we're the ideal Christians. We want to boast in our works. It's a a draw for us. And I've talked to a lot of Christians who feel ashamed because they're not as good as the other Christians. So they hide sin and they shrug it off and they make excuses and they resign themselves to a subpar Christian life because they don't want to deal with the shame of not being the star Christian. Maybe you're crippled by the knowledge of what you've done in the past, either as a Christian or a non-Christian. 
Maybe you've done some pretty awful things in your past and they haunt you daily. Maybe your sins cry out to your soul, condemning you, and you cannot find freedom from their whispers. Well, there's no distinction. You, O Christian, who grew up in a Christian family, you who grew up in the shadow of a shattered and broken family, you who were abused, you who knew you weren't worthy, you who feel like you really are the worst sinner, and you who needed to act like you had it all together for the sake of everyone around you, you're all from the same place, a place of fallenness. All have fallen short of the glory of God. Your sins testify against you. By them you're condemned. But listen to this. The consuming guilt of sin has got nothing on the penetrating righteousness of Christ. Your sin has got nothing, nothing on the righteousness of Christ. Look at the start of the next verse. 324. We are justified by his grace as a gift. Again, we come to the question, on what grounds does God make a declaration of righteousness? On what basis can you be justified? The only righteousness that can ever be sufficient for you to stand before the judgment seat of God is the righteousness of God himself, manifest in the life and work of his son, Jesus. The only righteousness that results in our justification is Christ's. We are truly, if we believe, simultaneously saint and sinner. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We are justified by his grace as a gift. We really are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. A verse that perhaps is one of the best summaries of this idea comes in chapter 4, Romans chapter 4, verses 4 through 5. This is Pastor Aaron's like favorite verse. I always think of him when I <laughs> read it. It says this, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. So, if you work at a coffee shop or something, and you get paid, it's not a gift, it's what you've earned. And to the one who does not work, to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly person, not the godly person, not the one whose righteousness is all there, the ungodly person, his faith is counted as righteousness. God justifies ungodly people, and you are an ungodly person, and he will credit righteousness to you. Praise God. So what? That's a cool truth. You're like, wow, that's interesting. Hmm, cool. Why is it such a big deal for you? I have three reasons. There's more than three reasons, but here's three reasons. One, it teaches us about how we're saved. We know Christ died on the cross for our sins. But this gives us clarity about exactly what Christ did. The better we understand how it was that God saves us, the more we can turn that knowledge into praise. It informs our prayers. It gives us a fuller meaning when we worship God. Daily, daily thank God for your righteous status in Christ. Praise him for it. In Romans chapter 1, Paul says the beginning of the spiral downwards into depravity, the very first thing on his list of the spiral is neglecting to give thanks to God. So don't neglect to give thanks to God. Daily thank him for his mercy and his grace. Recognize the truths of your salvation and praise him for it. Second, he gives us enduring peace. We don't need to fear no, no sin will ever corrupt our salvation. Anxiety, fear, depression, these things are around the corner everywhere these days, especially in Utah. In, in Mormonism, a man must sit before you and judge whether or not you are worthy. That kind of thinking, and Mormonism is not alone in this. I, I just That's in Utah, but it's not alone. Any, any system that does this leads to anxiety and despair as you try to prove to man 
that you live according to a list of commandments. It robs you, ultimately, of peace and security that is offered in the gospel. Listen, our minds will never know peace until we fall on the mercy of God alone. Any religious system that tells you you must be worthy to achieve the goal will crush you in life, and at the end will leave you with nothing but empty idols and joylessness. What good news indeed that we need not rest on ourselves, but rest on the gracious arms of our most merciful Savior. You have the greatest possible assurance of salvation that could possibly exist, the holiness of God himself granted to you. Nothing can more strongly hold you and bind you to the Lord than the perfection of the Almighty himself. So don't fear. Take heart. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are at peace with God. We're no longer an enemy of God. We are his child if we believe. This truth is the source of our lasting and enduring peace. Oh, Christian, let the peace of God guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And as a side note, how can this not produce in us a desire to share the gospel with people? This is like, this unlocks the key. Listen, you don't have to do everything by your works anymore. You can be saved by grace. There's a way if you believe God will give you Christ's righteousness. He will credit it to your account. People are living under a burden, under a yoke of shame and guilt and anxiety. But there's freedom in Christ. Freedom in him. Third, it turns our previous sins into reasons to worship God. Your life and past may be littered with horrible, unspeakable things. Ongoing sins that you struggle with daily now. So many Christians feel unceasing shame and guilt over their sin. Some so dark and twisting that you carry that around in your briefcase every day. Its ugliness drags you down. Romans 8.33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies these, the worst things we've done in our lives, they demonstrate for us the mercy and grace of God. They are a painting of his goodness. Not ours, of his goodness. Your worst sins have been paid for in Christ. They covered over with his blood. The grace of our Lord has rescued you. Rejoice, praise God for this. Your past sins, your current sins, and your future sins are now scars of grace. Paul said it, we are not ashamed of the gospel. It literally broadcasts our weakness. That's like what it does. It screams, we can't do it. We've failed. We constantly fail. But God rescued me. God rescued me. Many accuse Christians today of being hypocrites. And the truth is, they are exactly right. That is totally true. We preach a standard that we can never live up to. We're all hypocrites. That's the point of the gospel. We boast in our weakness that we can't live up to the standard because it demonstrates to the world that God is the one who saved, not me. Listen to me. You're sinful. Your works can't change that. You need the righteousness of God. If you do not confess and believe in Christ alone, you will not be saved. You will be judged according to your works, and you will go to hell. If you have not, if you have not, repent and turn to Christ in faith. Believe in him, and his righteousness will be credited to your account. Oh, what glorious rest awaits those who place their faith in the eternal everlasting Son, May God be glorified in being just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. For the one who believes, let this encourage your soul this very week. The burden of Christ is light and freeing. It gives peace to your soul and joy to your heart. It gives you hope and removes cause for despair. It is a promise and it is a future. May it grant rest to you. May you find peace in the arms of he who justifies the ungodly. Jesus once said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Amen. Praise God. Let's pray. Oh, God. In, in the face of your holiness and justice and righteousness, oh, Lord, we are in and of ourselves riddled with cause for despair and hopelessness. And God, we, we do nothing that warrants any, anything good from you. There is nothing good in us that you should save us. Oh God, you are just and we love your justice and we praise you for being just and good and righteous. And God, you have sent your son to save us. Thank you that he lived his life perfectly, righteously, so that we may now be righteous in your sight. God, these truths of salvation, Lord, help them not just be a heady intellectual exercise. Help them affect and influence the way we do everything in our entire life. Help them dictate how we think about sin. Help them have a joy, an unceasing joy that cannot be touched by the world. Please, Lord, grant us peace in the salvation that you have given us. Lord, would we... Would you help us turn these truths into worship of you? God, would we look to you? Would we praise you? Would we lift you up? Because you are just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. Oh God, you are good and we love you and we praise you. Thank you for your salvation. We pray these things in the glorious, perfect, righteous name of our Lord and Savior Jesus. Amen. Do you want to say real quick, this sermon is all about the way in which salvation and justification specifically is worked out. I don't want you to think that works are totally unimportant and it doesn't matter what we do. That's not the case. That's a sermon for another time. But delight this morning in the joy and freedom that comes with imputed righteousness.